Welcome to our weekend worship services at Woodlands Church. We are so thankful you have chosen to join us. If this is your first Sunday, your fifth Sunday, or your 500th Sunday, our passion is that you would faithfully follow Jesus. If you're interested in taking your next steps in that journey, look for the next steps tile on our website or on our app. Click that and we would love to walk through that journey with you. Let's start by turning our attention to worship. Hey Woodlands Church, we are so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning, this evening, whenever, whenever you are worshiping with us. We're so glad you're, that you're here. Uh, we are here to sing to our God, to, to fix our eyes, to remember who he is. And so I invite you again from wherever you are to just join us in, in singing right now. And this is where worship starts. And here in the temple of my heart, remembering who you are and all you've done. Your majesty and all I have tasted and I've seen, remembering who you are once again. I see the so good this morning, today, to remember who you are, to remember that you are the Lord, that you are high, that you are exalted, that you are lifted up, and that we are yours, God. And so we fix our eyes on you this morning, Jesus. We remember who you are, remember your promises. We thank you that you are here with us right now. We love you so much. We worship you. 
We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Woodlands, as we continue, we have a, a special treat today with it being the 4th of July weekend. Uh, we get to hear from our, our brother, a pastor here on staff, John Jordans, who also happens to be a chaplain uh, in the military. And so check out this video. Hey, Woodlands Church, great to be with you. I have the privilege to pray with you for our nation. So would you bow your heads and pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you with heavy hearts, but it's so appropriate this day to pause and remember you and to give thanks to you for the freedoms that we have as a nation, freedom to express our ideas and our opinions, freedom to gather, and of course, freedom to worship you. There's just so many other blessings that we tend to take for granted. But Lord, as we as a nation face the reality of a pandemic, a financial recession, and really a divided nation over racial tensions, we need you more than ever. Would you send your spirit in a fresh and in a powerful way on our nation? That we would regather our footing, that we would wake up to the reality of sometimes what we're trying to do nationally and politically is impossible to do that there is no freedom apart from the source of freedom. And that's in you, O Lord. God, would you help us as a nation to live by that golden rule, one that loves even our enemies and learns to embrace those who persecute you. We pray our national leaders wouldn't be afraid of that. Allow us to be a nation who is blessable so that we can be a blessing to others, both here and around the world. And God, would you give us humility and wisdom in these challenging and uncertain days? We need to learn a humility where we are quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry so that we can better understand and love our neighbors. And give us wisdom. We ask that you would grant us wisdom to know the way that you look on the affairs of our nation. Grant us wisdom to understand how you view our world today and what an ordered and just and compassionate society should look like. Grant us as a nation wisdom to know what to do with the reality of evil. And Lord, grant us wisdom to fight for the defenseless and those who don't have a voice. And Lord, we pray that we would not be found guilty of chasing the wrong American dream. But we, like our founding fathers, would ask, how do we use this awesome gift of freedom for the sake of others and for the sake of our nation? May we be a nation which depends on you, acknowledges all of your blessings, and values what you value. So in the days to come, Lord, help us not to forget the freedom that we have received through Christ. Help us to be faithful members of your kingdom and responsible citizens of the nation that we live in. We love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Hey, Woodlands Church, uh, thank you so much for joining us this 4th of July weekend, and thank you, John Jordans, for leading us in prayer for our nation uh, today. I hope you guys have had a really encouraging and refreshing 4th of July weekend. Uh, wherever you're watching this, I hope that it's been a, a time where you can get out in the lake, uh, go tubing, swimming, grill out, do whatever you do for relaxation uh, this weekend as we celebrate our nation's uh, independence. So if we have not been formally introduced, my name is Matt Wilhelm. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and uh, I have the privilege of continuing on in our Encouragement When Life Gets Hard series through the book of First Peter. And sometimes when we read scripture, uh, it is very easy for us to want to look at what is my next step here. I read these verses, and I want to take a couple things away that I can practically do this week. But sometimes scripture doesn't give us those things. Sometimes scripture challenges us to sit in tension. It presents a tension that we have to dwell on and think about and pray through and take inventory on our hearts about. And that's this passage this morning. See, if I'm really honest, this passage today is really tricky. It's tricky because it challenges us to suffer. And not just suffer. 
It challenges us to suffer for doing the right thing, to suffer when we don't deserve it, even. And I think uh, for us in our culture, that's a kind of uncomfortable thing to think about, to dwell upon. I know when I think about myself suffering, it's not a fond thing to think about, and I'm sure you're the same way in this. But this morning, that's what Peter challenges us to. Challenges us to suffer unjustly. And as we read this, as we read this text, uh, I'm going to open us in prayer, but I want us to pray that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So I'll pray and then we'll dive in. So will you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, today we thank you for your goodness and for your faithfulness in going to the cross. But God, sometimes in light of the cross, you challenge us to, uh, to dwell deeply and take inventory to sit in the tension that you show us between uh, the tension between uh, where our world is and who we are and uh, the brokenness in between all that. So God, help us to do that well today. Pray that your spirit would teach us and shape us to be more like you. We love you. Uh, We pray all of this in your name and all of God's people have said, amen. So uh, without further ado, uh, let's dive in. So we're going to dive into 1 Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 19, we'll have the verses on the screen here, but also wherever you are, I encourage you to open up your Bible to this. We're going to be opening up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. And as you are opening to that, a little bit of context for you. Again, Peter is writing to a church dispersed, Christians dispersed throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, ancient Roman Empire. He's writing to five different regions where there are churches. And the Christians that make up these churches are a broad swath of backgrounds. There are slaves, there are tax collectors, there are prostitutes, there are poor. There's the very rarely uh, the rich and the influential. And actually, uh, most of the first century Christians were women. Yeah, most of the first century church were women. And this first century church, they were kind of the weirdos of their day, for lack of a better phrase. A lot of the culture looked on them suspiciously, um, saw them as shady and a little bit odd. And so there was actually a lot of bias against Christians uh, in these five regions and really everywhere in the ancient world. So it is into this broad context that Peter uh, says this. Peter says, For it brings favor if... Because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Okay, so Peter says something that's a little backwards. He says that suffering is a good and favorable thing, so long as you're suffering for the right reasons. And for Peter, this is an issue of justice. He uses the word unjustly. It's a, it's a Greek conjunction word. It, says, it uses a prefix, a, meaning without, and dikaios, which is the Greek word for justice. So a dikaios is the word, and it means without justice, unjustly. Peter's talking about suffering unjustly is a good thing. See, if you do something wrong and you suffer negative consequences for it, well, that just makes sense because that's a just and fair response. But again, Peter says it's good and it's favorable to suffer unjustly. He says if you're going to suffer, you want it to be because of this phrase that he uses. It says because of a consciousness of God. And this phrase means uh, if you have called Jesus king, and you have chosen to follow him, that his spirit has dwelt in you, and his spirit is influencing the way that you live, the way that you interact with people, your city, your culture, your world around you. Uh, The spirit gives you wisdom and guidance in that. That is a consciousness of God. If you suffer because of that, then it's a good thing. And guys, I think this is where it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable for us. Because who in your living rooms... Who of you would say, yeah, it's a great thing to suffer. I can't wait to suffer. I'm excited to experience suffering, right? 
I don't really think any of us actually say that. I know I, for one, am not excited to suffer undeservedly or unjustly. But Peter flips around our idea. He's challenging us to flip our idea of what suffering is and why it's good. But Peter doesn't just describe suffering as good and favorable. He doesn't just do that. And actually, in the next verse, he takes it a step further. Uh, Peter says this. He says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay, so this changes the tone of the passage, doesn't it, right? It changes the tone of what's going on. Peter's not saying if you happen to suffer, okay, shake it off, not a big deal. It won't happen all the time. No big deal, right? Instead, he says that if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you call Jesus king, if his spirit has indwelt you, he says that if you've given your life to Christ, that you are called to suffer. It's not just an incidental thing. It's an integral part of your life, your existence as a citizen of the kingdom of God until that kingdom returns. You and I, if we call Jesus king, we are called to suffer as Jesus did and follow in his steps. We are called to suffer. I can't repeat that and reiterate that more. We're called to suffer. So how do you feel about that so far? How does it feel to hear that? So guys, if we are called to suffer, if that's our calling, to follow Jesus' example, then what does his example actually look like? Right? It's important to not just talk about this ideal of suffering, but actually dive into what does this look like to suffer like Jesus? Help me understand. And Peter tells us. Let's keep reading in 1 Peter. Peter says, He, Jesus, did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that phrase, entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, is something that I want us to come back to and dwell on for a bit. But guys, this is what it looks like to suffer like Jesus. When Jesus, though completely innocent, was insulted, he did not sling insults back in return. When Jesus was suffering unjustly, he didn't threaten the ones that was causing the suffering. Instead, Peter tells us he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now that phrase, that's kind of a mouthful, right? That's not something you say in your everyday conversation. I know I don't walk around my house saying this uh, when my kids yell at me. When my kids yell at me, I, I, don't, I don't calmly respond, don't worry, I'm entrusting myself to the one who judges justly. I don't say that to my kids. You probably don't either. So what does this phrase mean to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly? Justly. So I want us to dwell on a, uh, an imaginary scenario. So engage your imagination and, and imagine this scenario with me, right? So you are uh, wrongfully accused of a crime. And not just wrongfully accused, you're found guilty for it and you're sentenced to death for that crime. But just before your sentencing is carried out, you're granted an audience with the most powerful judge in all of the land. All right? You're granted an audience with him. So what, what would you say to that judge if you're wrongfully accused and sentenced to death? What would you say? I think, I think most of us would probably be quick to defend our innocence, right? I didn't do it. It was somebody else. I'm not the guy. I'm not the woman. You got the wrong person here. Uh, it wasn't me. I don't know who it was. I was here when this happened. You got to believe me. And we would probably plead because this person can save our life, right? Yeah, but here's another tension point. That's not what Jesus does because Jesus actually faced this exact scenario. This isn't just an imaginary scenario. Jesus faced it. 
We can actually see this play out in John chapter 18. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 33. And here's some context for you on that verse. Um, By this point, the point that we're going to jump in, by this point, Jesus has been awake for quite some time. He was arrested by Jewish authorities, tried for blasphemy before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish uh, legal authority, so to speak. Um, he found guilty of blasphemy. Um, the Jews in, the, in this day didn't have the legal authority to actually execute people on their own. So this is why they bring him to Herod, who then sends him to Pilate, who, by the way, is the Roman authority over all of Israel at the time. So that's what's happened so far. So let's dive into John 18, starting in verse 33. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. So what have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Okay, so a crowd uh, is calling for Jesus' head. They're yelling, crucify him. He's standing before Pilate the chance to plead his innocence. And guys, I've always thought this passage was just odd, right? I I thought that Jesus was being vague and cryptic um, because I just didn't get it. I didn't just get what was going on here. I thought to myself, Jesus, why don't you just plead your innocence? Pilate's asking you and he smells something fishy here. I think Pilate senses there's some injustice here. Um, He's a little bit um, weary of why these Jews are bringing Jesus to him, pleading Pilate to kill him. Pilate smells this, Jesus. Just, Just tell him you're innocent. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God? What? How is that connected to this? Like why? Why does Jesus start talking about the kingdom of God? See guys, when when faced with suffering or being unjustly wronged, our world tells us to respond by fighting fire with fire, right? If you're punched in the face, Our world and all the kingdoms of the world and the justice of our world says, punch back. If someone you love insults you, if a good friend, if your spouse, whoever it is, insults you, the justice of our world and the kingdoms of our world say, you've been hurt, you have a right to hurt back. So send that insult or something worse back at them. If someone steals from you, Our culture says it's not just enough to get that item that was stolen back. Get that item back and then some. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of stuff, right? Hammurabi's law, you probably learned about that somewhere in history class, right? That's the justice of our world, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I think this kind of a reaction for us is very normal. And if I'm honest, it's super normal for me. When I feel hurt, my main reaction is to just sling it back, to respond without kindness, to, to say no to every fruit of the Spirit and respond by punching back, whether physically or emotionally. But Jesus stands before the kingdoms of the world and starts talking about God's kingdom. See, Jesus does this because he recognizes something in this story that the others don't. He recognizes that God's justice is the only true justice. Human justice is not justice. Our justice is flawed. It cannot be complete and perfect as God's justice is. Only when we align ourselves with God's justice is it complete and perfect. And when Jesus starts talking about God's kingdom, he's doing exactly what Peter says to do. He's entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus puts himself in the hands of God 
and says, God, you know what's right here. You know what is good and just. So you have got this. But I have to be really clear with you guys that Jesus doesn't respond passively. This is not a passive response. Jesus is not sitting there letting things hit him. He's not being a punching bag. He's not letting things go past him without a care in the world. That's not what entrusting yourself to God looks like. Entrusting yourself to God means actively choosing this. It means saying every time you are punched, that the response to that punch is saying, God, that punch is yours. You take it and do with it as you will because I trust you and you are just and you are judge and you are God. Jesus here is actively choosing to let God be the judge of his accusers and yes, his executioners. I mean, think about this for a minute though. When someone does me wrong, sure, of course I can lash out at them to defend myself. I can implement what I think is justice. But... Wouldn't I rather the person who wronged me have to answer to God for that? Because really, what consequence is there if they have to answer to me and I'm the highest authority? How is that consequential and how is that just? What can I even do? But Jesus goes the opposite route because Jesus knows that every evil and wrong and sin in this world has to answer to the one true God who wants to do away with all of those things. The world and all of its evil has to answer to God and that is far greater a reckoning than I could ever give. So what does it mean to entrust yourself to God? Once and for all, what's the definition of what it means to entrust yourself to God? What well, means to put yourself in the hands of God and let him deal with the injustice and evil in a way that you never could. That's what it means. It means to put yourself in the hands of God and let God deal with the evil and injustice in a way that you never could, a more complete and more full way. And for these early Christians, the first Christians, the audience of First Peter, to hear this message, this was nothing new for them. This is a message that's all over the New Testament. I'm not speaking something new or radical here, so don't shoot the messenger. This is all over the New Testament, and it's something that was widely taught uh, amongst the first Christians. So Jesus actually talks about this in the book of Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, uh, Matthew tells us this. Jesus says, starting in verse 38, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? We were just talking about that. But I, Jesus, tell you, don't resist an evildoer. That word resist is a Greek word, antistemi, which means to oppose or push back against. Jesus is saying, don't oppose or push back against an evildoer when they wrong you. That's key. We'll get back to that later. But when they wrong you as an individual, don't push back. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and your sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? But be perfect, therefore, as your father is perfect. These are Jesus' words. Peter's just echoing them. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, verse 17, starting there, he says, Paul says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. You see where this is going? If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, because God judges you for your actions, not you for someone else's actions. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. 
Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Do you see this, right? Do you hear that? Guys, this response from these first Christians This was the heartbeat of the early church. This was the heartbeat of the church when they faced suffering and when they faced persecution. It's this response to persecution that often we can read this in church history documents, church history books, right? The document, how the church grew in the first and second centuries. It is this response that often convinced persecutors to convert to Christianity. Guys, it's this response that caused missionary Elizabeth Elliot to return to a jungle tribe in Ecuador that killed her husband, murdered her husband. It's this response that caused her to go back to that tribe, live with them for two years and share the gospel with them. And it's her response that so shocked this tribe that the whole tribe came to call Jesus their king because of it. It's this response that is echoed by Martin Luther King Jr. when he says, darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. But I want to stop again in this tension that we're dwelling in here and clarify something. See, this passage out of 1 Peter has time and again historically been used by oppressors and abusers to keep people in their situation of oppression and abuse. It's time and again in history been used to say, stay where you are. See, Peter says you can't leave. But let me be super clear with you. Peter doesn't say you can't leave that. Peter just says you can't respond like the oppressor and the abuser is treating you. Peter is saying respond like a citizen of the kingdom of God, not like a citizen of the world. Don't fight fire with fire, but you do not have to just sit in it. If you have the capability to get out of it, then by all means, get out of it. This passage does not justify oppression and abuse. Quite the contrary, actually. And this is where context in this passage really, really matters. We mentioned some of the context at the beginning of the sermon, but guys, context in this passage is really important. We need to dive deeper into it to understand the full force of what Peter is saying. See, Peter's audience wasn't suffering just because they called themselves Christians. They weren't suffering because uh, they did something wrong. They were suffering precisely because they did something right and they were faithful to God's calling on their lives. See, in two, chapter 2, verse 18, Peter mentions slaves. He actually uses the Greek word oiketai, uh, which is different. Uh, in the New Testament, Paul calls himself a slave or a servant of Jesus. He uses a general term for slaves called doulos. But Peter uses this term oiketai, which means household slave or servant. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter talks about wives in marriages. And we mentioned this, that most of the first Christians were actually women. They were women and slaves. Peter's addressing a majority population of this early church. So why does he single out these two though? Well, despite the fact that slaves and women weren't in the upper echelon of society, they still held the ability to be representatives of their households, right? Wives were representatives of the master of the house, their husband, Slaves were representatives of the master of the house as their employee. They were representatives of the house. And it was very common for pagan slaves and pagan women to convert to Christianity. And when they did, the Holy Spirit indwelt them and urged them on to do Christian ministry, to do ministry in their communities and in their spheres of influence. And this ministry often looked like going into prisons to feed criminals who hadn't eaten in days. 
This often involved inviting prostitutes into your home for dinner. These are temple prostitutes who were enslaved in the temple and abused day after day after day. Inviting them into your home to have dinner and give them human dignity. It often meant caring for the least of this ancient Roman society. People that the society had said are worthless. And for the master of the house, right? For the master of the house, this was disgraceful and shameful to have your wife or your employee doing this. This represented you. And if you didn't share the same Christian values, it wasn't going to work out well for your wife or for your household servant. And so these Christians, slaves and, ho- slaves and wives, they suffered for this. For slaves, it often meant beatings, being put out on the street, which means they didn't have housing or food. For wives, it often meant divorce or a disowning so that your husband could upgrade to a wife with less opinions and less action taking. And even though these Christians lost their households that they served in, lost the protection of their households, they never lost their Christian family because reading between the lines in this text, the expectation is that the church brings those people in and cares for them. But, guys, the audience of First Peter was suffering because they were standing in the gap to defend the oppressed and the abused. This passage doesn't justify oppression and abuse. This passage urges Christians to stand in the gap and throw in their lot with the oppressed and the abused of the society. It's an encouragement not to suffer because of your political affiliation or your choice in music and movies or the words you say or don't say. It's a challenge to suffer because you have thrown in your lot and chosen to identify with the least of these in our world. This passage encourages us as Christians to willingly suffer for the sake of those who are under oppression, both physically and spiritually. And Peter says this is our calling in life because it's exactly what Jesus did for us. Peter says this actually in verses 24 and 25. So let's go back to to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Peter says that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins we might live for righteousness because by his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls guys this is jaw dropping stuff this is amazing Peter says that he says in this passage that Jesus suffered for us. Last week, Brian highlighted this, that in, in uh, last week's passage, uh, verses 11 to, to 18, uh, Peter says that sin wages war on our souls. And this is all part of the same argument for Peter. Guys, sin is oppressive toward us. It does something adverse to us and abuses us and shapes us to be something that we were never designed to be. This is what sin does to us. Sin is our oppressor. It's an oppressor of the entire world. That's why Paul in Romans 8 says that all creation is groaning because sin has oppressed this world. But Jesus willingly stepped in and bore our sins. And Peter is careful to say this, that Jesus bears our sins. He bears the oppression of our sins on his physical body, his physical self. He bears it. But guys, if you don't think sin is oppressive, if you don't think sin is oppressive, then you're missing the full force of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If you don't think sin is oppressive, you miss the full force of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And guys, I think there's a chapter, a passage in Luke chapter 9 that tells us about what he calls, what the Bible calls the transfiguration. James, John, and Peter go off with Jesus late one night to pray. And Luke tells us about something that happens. And guys, this passage is incredibly important. 
in Scripture. It's incredibly important in the New Testament in understanding what Jesus accomplished, understanding that sin is an oppressor and Jesus accomplishes something here. So let's read this in Luke chapter 9. It says, About eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. And they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So guys, what, imagine this. What, what, do, you, what do you think Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, if they're talking, right? This sounds like the beginning of a joke. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah walk into a bar, right? No. Uh, what do you think Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about? when they're having this conversation. Well, Luke tells us they're talking about his departure that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And sometimes, more often than not, we miss what's going on here. There's a whole theme in Luke related to this one word. And in the Greek, this word is actually a conjunction. It's two Greek words combined to make one. It's the preposition ek, meaning out of, Ek, meaning out of, and hadas, meaning the way or the road. And when you put them together, you get exodus. So this word departure is exodus. So if we read it again, we would say, they appeared in glory and we were speaking, and they were speaking of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That word exodus, that's where we get the title of our English book, the book of Exodus, right? And it's important here. This word is important because of who he's having a conversation with. You see, Moses led God's people on a physical exodus out of the oppression of sin and slavery. He led God's people on an exodus out of slavery, a physical exodus. Elijah led God's people on a spiritual exodus out from under the oppression of idolatry of the nation. But Jesus, Jesus in this passage is about to go to Jerusalem to accomplish the most complete and full exodus that we can possibly imagine of God's people. Jesus is leading God's people at the foot of the cross, at the cross, and in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus is about to accomplish an exodus out of physical death, out of the death that comes from sin. He's about to accomplish the most ultimate exodus out of sin, death, and evil that this world has ever seen and will ever see to set us free from the oppression of sin, from the abuser of sin. See, while sin brought physical death, Jesus bore the penalty on our behalf and rose again from the dead to declare that that penalty of sin, bringing death, is no more. And while sin brought spiritual death, Jesus bore that penalty on the cross. As Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Well, Jesus bore those wages and put that on his physical body, on his back, and died on our behalf. Guys, this is the exodus that Jesus accomplishes for your heart, for my heart. But not just for our hearts, because remember, the exodus of Jesus that he accomplishes is not just a spiritual one, it's a physical one. Guys, Jesus willingly threw his lot in with us. The immortal God steps in as a mortal man, a mortal human. Jesus put our sins on his back and carried them to the point of his own death. And he willingly suffered so that we might have life. And not just have life, but be healed and be welcomed into the fold of the ultimate good shepherd who loves us and protects us. Do you see this? Do you see what Jesus has accomplished? What he did? This is Jesus' accomplishment. This is what Jesus has accomplished. So guys, Jesus wasn't afraid of what others would do to him. In John 13, John tells us that Jesus, knowing where he came from and knowing where he is going, Jesus throws the towel over his shoulder and begins to wash his disciples' feet. 
He becomes a servant. And guys, our call to be like Jesus is actually just a call because remember the exodus of Jesus is not just spiritual, it's physical. It's not just otherworldly, it's here now. Because of that, the call of Jesus on our lives is to throw that towel over our shoulder and be servants and suffer with the oppressed and the abused of our world. And this is our challenge from 1 Peter today. This is our challenge. The tension we need to sit in is this. Our walk with Jesus is supposed to cost us something. It's supposed to be good if we suffer for doing the right thing. Because we stand with the oppressed and the hurting as a church, we're supposed to suffer. But guys, if our walk with Jesus doesn't cost us something, then maybe there's something wrong with our walk with Jesus. If we take an inventory of our walk with Jesus and find that it's not costing us something, maybe, just maybe, we're not doing it right. If we take an inventory of our hearts, would we find compassion for the oppressed and the hurting of our world? Would we find compassion for the oppressed and hurting in our own backyard? Would we find the willingness in our hearts if we take an inventory the willingness to suffer with those people. So the tension is, how are you doing with that? How are we doing with that? Guys, I want to lead us in a short prayer um, as we wrap up today and lead out and pray that our hearts would break for what God's heart's heart breaks for. That our hearts would be aligned with Jesus in this. That we would find that willingness in our, heart, in our hearts to suffer not just passively, but suffer, suffer for the sake of others and trust that God in his justice will actually bring justice where it is needed. So will you pray with me? Jesus, uh, we love you and God, help us to sit in this tension well. There's probably things in this sermon, in this text that are hard to hear and hard to reckon with and hard to uh, even feel out. And God, help us to just, one, even realize what we're feeling right now about this. But two, God, help us to dwell here and take honest inventory of our hearts. Lord, we pray that your spirit indwelling us would urge us on to this type of ministry, that God, if we would be so privileged to have this, that God, we would suffer for the ministry of helping the poor, the poor and the oppressed and the hurting and the abused of our world, that we would align ourselves with them and throw our lot in with them, even if we suffer. And yet, God, we would do as James says and rejoice in that. Teach us to do this and be like you, Lord. We love you and pray all of this in your name and all of God's people said, amen. Hey, Woodlands, we want to wrap up our time now uh, worshiping again. So I invite you to sing with us wherever you are. Forget the wonder of how you brought deliverance in the exodus of my heart. So you found me, you freed me, held back the waters from my release. Oh, Yahweh, and you're the God who fights for me.
what a good reminder of what you have done, what a good reminder of who we are in you, that you have called us out of captivity, you've called us out of slavery, you've called us into your marvelous light, you've called us to be citizens of the kingdom of God, and I pray because of who you are and what you have accomplished that we would live our lives knowing our citizenship is in heaven and live our lives for that kingdom and for the sake of your name. We love you so much. We give you all the glory. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for worshiping with us. Have a great week, everyone.